Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1950 film All About Eve. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Sam. Barrett, this is, I think, the third kind of major film that we've looked at from uh, from the year 1950. I was just looking at the, the 51 Oscars and realizing that um, we have spent a, a good chunk of time looking at Sunset Boulevard, both mm-hmm. on this podcast and in film form. This is also the year The Third Man comes out. So uh, a pretty good year for movies, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly uh, it's interesting to think about connections between this film and Sunset Boulevard in particular. Yeah, we're definitely going to going to get into that a little bit. Um, but to start off with, what is your history with this movie? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the first time I saw it, Sam. It's certainly one of those films that I, uh, I'm pretty sure I didn't see it in any kind of a artsy theater or anything like that. I must have seen it on, most likely on video, probably the late 90s or so. Uh, it's a film I kind of knew by reputation for a while. What's interesting is if you had asked me before we watched Sunset Boulevard what it was about, I would have given you this plot. Oh. So clearly, and I had never seen this movie, so clearly I was aware of this movie, and I knew mm. sometime around this time there's a story about kind of an aging actress and a younger actress kind of coming up behind her. I thought that so so it, it actually made my viewing of Sunset Boulevard so much more fun when I realized that's not this movie at all. And then when I watched this, I didn't have that idea in mind because I was like, well, I must be thinking of something totally different. Um, so I went into this not entirely knowing uh, what this was going to be about, um, which I think really uh, added a lot to this movie. I liked the, I really liked this movie, but I very much enjoyed not knowing. Um, I mean, I knew I, I could guess the kind of rough outline, but there are certain points to this plot that I wasn't sure how it was going to, how it was going to play out. And uh, they do a good job of waiting on on showing you some of that stuff. Um, so maybe to get this kicked off, uh, I want to think about Betty Davis. Um, mm. She's somebody who I think, again, as a child of the 80s, she's somebody I knew almost by caricature more mm-hmm. than um, more than like actually seeing her as an actress. I'm fairly certain this is the f- only thing of consequence that I've ever actually seen her in. Um, I think I've seen her in, in little pieces here or there, but like not, not, not like a major role. Um, who was she in 1950? Well, that's a good question, Sam. She was a fading star. Um, you know, she had been a pretty big star in the thirties and, and, uh, and forties, uh, Academy award for Jezebel, I think an Academy award, if not an, at least a nomination for now Voyager in like 1943, 1944, but she was definitely, um, on the, on the decline, uh, not the first choice for this role. She was about number eight in, 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 in line. Um, so she, and she was sort of known for histrionics. She, she was sort of known for being uh, a little bit of the, maybe the Al Pacino of her time, a little bit of a scenery chewer, uh, known for being kind of lacrimose, a lot of, a lot of tears, um, but, but still at the same time, um, highly respected. Uh, I mean, not, not, not by any means, uh, moribund, but certainly somebody who was, a, had been a big name, but hadn't had any big successes in the previous four or five years. Yeah, I think she she won two Oscars. I think in thirty seven and thirty eight. So she's about twelve years removed from yeah. that. Um, and I will say everything you described about her is sort of what I was expecting from her. So because it kind of fits the caricature I had. 
I think this is a great performance and it's not, it's not those things. And when it is those things, it's playing with the idea that that's the kind of actress um, that she is. There's something wonderful about her introduction in this movie, which is, which is an introduction that um, really uh, shows a lack of vanity. I think, I mean, Mm -hmm. we see her backstage, her hair is taped up so she could wear a wig. She's, Um, she's already filled her face with cream as she's taking off her makeup. So, I mean, it's, it's so that that first impression of her that way, I was like, Oh, okay. This is something, this is something different than what I thought this was going to be kind of in the same way uh, with Gloria Swanson in sunset Boulevard. I had one idea of what this character was going to be. And in fact, it was this far richer characterization and a really good performance. I loved Betty Davis in this movie. Yeah, I think I think you have a good point about that opening scene. First of all, there is a lack of vanity. Uh, she's certainly not presented to best advantage. But at the same time, it's also a scene that that expresses her fundamental identity, or or you could say the fundamental conflict in her character. That is the conflict between her identity on stage and who she is off stage, and the notion of uh, who is Margot Channing. Is Margot Channing a role she inhabits? It's almost like, it made me think about the the Cary Grant remark, where Cary Grant once remarked about how hard it was to play Cary Grant. Um, it's That's almost the way Margot Channing is. It's like Margot Channing is an identity she inhabits, and she has to, one of the themes of the film is trying to figure out, in a sense, who she, who she actually is, apart from her identity as an actress. Right, and it's an identity that she can recognize is... I think she she gives it about ten more years that it that 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 identity can exist, and then she's going to have to figure figure that out. And we'll dive we'll definitely dive mm. uh, dive more into that. Um, but before we get into the film itself, I want to think about 1950 a little bit, mm. um, because what's going on in Hollywood or in the world that there are two major films which dominate the Oscar nominations. I mean, between these films, there are eight acting nominations between these two films, um, Sunset Boulevard and this. So these two films that feature aging stars, and I'm putting aging in quotes, aging stars playing aging stars. <laughs> why, why in, I have some thoughts potentially on this, but why do you think in 1950 we're seeing this bubble up in two major films? I think, okay, I'm going to take a stab at a couple things that are going on, Sam. One is that the studio system is starting to fall apart a little bit. Um, So there's this sense that Hollywood itself is kind of, um, if not exactly senescent, it's it's kind of reached the point where there needs to be a kind of recalibration of how we make movies and who is in the movies. Uh, You know, the the theme of the aging stars, who's passing the torch? So the previous torch that was passed was from the silence to the talkies. And now we're going from predominantly black and white to predominantly color. Uh, things like Vista Vision, widescreen are kind of on, on the horizon. And that points to the other challenge to, to film, which is um, maybe a little bit over the horizon. I still think it's coming, which is TV. Uh, 1950s becomes a real battle for Hollywood to kind of uh, find, kind of create reasons for people to go back into the theaters, which interestingly enough, we're living through in it for a different reason now. So I think those are a couple of things. Hollywood's own sense of it's the fact that it's aging. A lot of the old studios, studio bosses are literally old men now. There's a lot more independent uh, producers uh, people like Daryl Zanuck, for example, uh, and at the same time, we have this cultural shift with television beginning uh, to us as- to ascend. 
Well, and this this script is uh, happy to take shots at movies, but also happy to takes a few shots at TV. Um, you know, already by 1950, talking about like you know, are there auditions in television? And he says, mm-hmm. I think uh, Dewitt says it's nothing but auditions. I think is what <laughs> how, how he describes it. Um, I also wonder. I, w- I was trying to think about this this morning, and I was thinking beyond just like the film industry, you know. And I've been thinking about some of the films we've been watching lately uh, um, about uh, world people coming back from World War II. Um, I was thinking, I mean, this film definitely mm-hmm. has this questions about like uh, what does what is the role of a woman, especially mm-hmm. uh, the role of a professional woman. Yeah. Um, now, obviously. Um, Margot Channing is not is not working because you know uh, there was a need for people in industries during the war, but she is definitely wrestling with like her role as a professional woman versus her role. I mean, to use her words in this as a woman, you know, mm-hmm. and like what are her responsibilities there? Um, uh, so, so we definitely have a lot of women who are probably wrestling with those questions a little bit. Now, that's not about aging, but it is about professional versus versus sort of. Um, personal identity uh, questions. I also wonder about, you have this group of young people who go off and fight in in World War II. And, you know, a lot of those folks are 18 to 22, you know, what we think of as like college age people going off to fight in the war. And they leave functionally as, you know, people right on the cusp of adulthood. But a lot of them leave as essentially old children, right? Mm 18-year-olds, especially because of the depression. There's not a lot of necessarily of jobs, things like that. So this, they, but they come back as adults ready to sort of, um, you know, kind of take on the world and build and build America. This is kind of that greatest generation sort of argument. So I'm also wondering Mm -hmm. if there is this sense of like, Mm-hmm. We are now adults. What we want, we want to see ourselves reflected and ourselves reflected is this kind of youth and energy. So maybe it's also Hollywood thinking about itself aging as you're, you know, as you're saying, sort of thinking like, what is the relationship between the people that we had looked at as stars before the war and the people after? Again, I don't know anything about that, but I that's one of the things I was kind of wondering about. That's an interesting way of thinking about it, Sam, especially since uh, if I think about both these films, both Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve, uh, those ambitious young people uh, actually end up, in the case of one character, William Holden's character, they end up dead in a swimming pool. Uh, and at the end of All About Eve, um, Eve, it, 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 in one sense, has achieved what she wanted to, but in another sense, she's kind of bereft at the end. So it's almost as though a film, the films take a little bit of a, of a revenge on those on those young, uh, those young whippersnappers, social class. Yeah, yeah. Another name I want to throw out here as we start to dig into this is Joseph Mankiewicz, and I have uh, to say I was unaware of Mankiewicz other than as the brother of uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who I was really only aware of this year watching the film Mank, and then you know reading more about Citizen Kane and those things. Um, I didn't realize what a what a big figure he was. I mean, he is when he makes this movie, he's already. Uh, the year before, he already won Best Director, Best uh, uh, Adapted Screenplay. This year, he's going to again win Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and All About Evil win Best Picture. So he's probably at the the apex of his career at this moment. Um, so, so, <clears throat> but I don't really know much about him beyond, you know, um, the depiction of him I see in the movie Mank. And I will say, I will say, this movie fits the depiction of. 
um, Joseph Mankiewicz that I see in Mank, and just in terms of like the 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 kind of writerly wit that that mm -hmm. whole group of people has, this movie is dripping with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, he re he really makes a claim to be uh, a true auteur in the sense that he writes and directs his own films, and he had a pretty pretty rapid rise through Paramount from doing scripts to producing to actually directing, and and you know the other people that we'd actually watched uh, in this series, people like Preston Sturgis and Billy Wilder. Um, are kind of in, in the same in the same kind of group with Mankiewicz of those who both wrote and directed their own films. So you're right; he's highly literate. He's he's often um, uh, dismissed or de-emphasized as a visual director. He's often cast as somebody who's much more interested in 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 language than he is in images. Of course, the same criticism has been made of Billy Wilder as well. Um, I think there's actually, we can talk about this later, I think there's actually some fairly interesting visual things going on in this film, uh, as well as, as the, the script itself. But Mankiewicz was certainly extremely literary. Uh, after this film, he, he goes on to direct a version of Julius Caesar. Uh, he does Guys and Dolls. And then we can talk about this later. He, he unfortunately participates in the, in the disaster that was Cleopatra. <laughs> uh, with uh, with with Elizabeth Taylor, and that's a that's a kind of an interesting story that almost killed him literally. Well, and it is also worth noting. I was saying this is probably the apex of his career at this moment. He um, not only does he um, win for best um, original screenplay for All About Eve, he's also nominated for best adapted screenplay the same year uh, for No Way Out. So mm -hmm. he's kind of. Um, he's kind of all over, uh, all over the Oscars uh, in this in this particular year. What I found really interesting about this play, uh, this I was going to say play um, about this this movie um, is how interested it is in the relationship. Now, in this case, in the theater, but I assume uh, this also reflects in um, in film as well. But maybe that's not a fair assumption to make. The relationship between people like. The, the playwright or the screenwriter, the director, the actor, the producer, the critic. We get all of those folks introduced at the beginning, and there's a lot of great arguments people making back and forth about sort of who really is the central figure that makes the theater. Um, and I, mm. I thought I found that stuff really interesting, especially thinking of Mankiewicz as somebody who comes up as a writer. Um, this isn't necessarily a movie that that positions the writer as the most important uh, in that. But 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 that's that's a real that's a really good point, and and we see this actually. You've already referred to uh, David Fincher's Mank, right? We see this in Mank, right? This idea that writers are are marginalized. I mean, it's like you wouldn't have a film without the writer, but these writers are, they're interchangeable. If we don't like what this writer does, we'll get another writer. And of course, so many Hollywood films are the product of two or three or four, half a dozen writers. And so I think that, that the, the Mankiewicz is the one who is both the writer and the and the director. I think that's one of the reasons why you get to see Lloyd Richards. I, you know, I'm not sure in a typical Hollywood production if the if the um, playwright actually has the, the kind of uh, exercise of power that Lloyd Richards has, but I think that's sort of Mankiewicz, uh, in a sense, kind of reading his own desire back into the way the theater works. Yeah, there's some. I, I wrote some some lines down where where they're sort of reflecting on this. One is Dewitt at the beginning, when he's talking about the director and the playwright. He says, uh, "Since their function is merely to construct a tower so that the world can applaud a light which flashes on top of it, um, you know." So 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 Dewitt seems to think that the two of that group, the two that matter, are the actor and the critic. I mean, Dewitt basically positions the critic as you know perhaps the 
as an essential piece of theater, right? He says, I, I neither uh, toil nor spin. Yes. Uh, I, I am a native of the theater. I neither toil there nor spin there, but I am essential to this. Um, that 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 character is fantastic. So we actually have two writers, right? We have both the playwright and the mm -hmm. critic position there. And then there is the, um, I, one of the things that I love about this movie is how much, um, not just wit, but how much, how many interesting points are made amidst argument in this movie um mm -hmm. so there is the, the the great scene when margo comes for the um to read with uh miss coswell and realizes mm -hmm. that she's late and then there's this big blow up um and uh lloyd sh lloyd says to her as as he's leaving uh, i shall never understand the weird process by which a body with a voice suddenly fancies itself a mind <laughs> just when exactly does an actress decide that uh, the words she's saying are hers and the thoughts she's expressing are hers. And then Margot responds, uh, it's usually at the point when she has to rewrite the things to keep people from falling asleep in the theater. And then Lloyd says, uh, it's about time the piano realized it hasn't written a concerto. <laughs> so, so we, I mean, we definitely do get the writer here saying, I mean, uh, exclaiming, you know, kind of the, I am important. Writing is important. Everything that's said here is written, you know, kind of thing. But also he gets put in his place quite a bit as well. Of course, the irony, Sam, is that at a meta level, they're both just speaking the lines that Mankiewicz has given them. Exactly. <laughs> so neither of them actually has a mind of his or her own in this case. <laughs> um, one of the things that jumped out at me was the and I, I've already hinted at this, the brilliant structure of this film. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, then this again, it goes back to both the writer and the director who are the people who give, you know, give structure to this. Um, but that it opens uh, it's such a strange point in the story. It doesn't open at the end of the story, like sunset Boulevard, but it opens very close to the yeah. end. Um, and it opens at an apex point in the career of Eve, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. the Sarah Sidden awards, which is a, was a, uh, fictional award that then became a real award i was reading right, about yes, this, yes, yes. <laughs> which betty davis then has since won <laughs> um uh but it opens at this award and um we get this uh dewitt voiceover and he like i said he introduces every one of the characters and what i loved about this is they're all kind of like as they're sitting around the table and we haven't even met Eve yet. We don't know who Eve is. We just see them all kind of staring daggers, you know, at, at, as, as we move around the table. Um, and what this felt like to me, the first time I watched this was it felt like a murder mystery where I'm like, okay, here are the, here are the suspects, you know, cause everybody looks a little questionable. And what I love is when I watched it the second time I realized Oh, maybe these are the victims and not the suspects, you know, but, but it's, it sets them up. It sets you up to view the story one way because mm -hmm. of how Eve is introduced. And like I said, it's not until later that you, that you, uh, that you learn more about her. Yeah. I, I want to say a couple things about that. Um, Sam, you know, sometimes Hollywood producers are um, vilified as, uh, as ruining films, you know? So, I mean, most famously, you know, Almost everything Orson Welles ever did was taken away from him by a producer and edited it, edited in other ways. But Daryl Zanuck was a really smart producer. And so it's Zanuck that gave the film its its title, actually. Um, it was originally, I'm trying to remember now, maybe you remember, it was originally going to be called Bright, Great Performance, Brilliant, I, I can't remember. It, it, it wasn't a particularly memorable title. 
And Zanuck was reading the script and he saw that line where DeWitt says more about Eve, all about Eve. And Zanuck underlined that uh, as said, you know, this, this is the title. So I, I think, I mean, titles don't make movies, but I mean, that's such a great, that's such a great title. It was um, best performance. Best performance. Thank you. Um, the other thing I want to say about the structure is um, this is actually the same structure as you, as you noted, uh, Sunset Boulevard starts all the way at the end and gets, gets there. But this is the structure of Out of the Past, where Out of the Past begins and you get a flashback and then you come up to the present and then you go forward. So I have no idea whether that was um, conscious in Mankiewicz's mind or not. But uh, it's, it's interesting because that flashback is also uh, often a, a noir uh, um, uh, trope and he actually applies it here. And so the way you describe the beginning of, you know, are these the usual suspects? Who's the villain here? I mean, there is a little bit of the noirish uh, tone to that. Mm -hmm. And in another piece that we get, which is also uh, a piece of, of uh, sometimes often in noir along with these flashbacks, but happens a little bit different here is we get voiceover, but you soon realize we're going to get multiple voiceovers yes. that, that it's, you know, at first it's DeWitt. So I was just assuming because I've watched movies before. Okay. So DeWitt is going to narrate this movie. And then all of a sudden um, we have uh we have um, Karen Richards starting to do voiceover, and then we have Margot do voiceover later, and 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 that was so surprising me. It actually reminded me of another uh, another Mankiewicz project, a Herman Mankiewicz. Project. It reminded me of Citizen Kane, right? These yeah. different people giving their accounts of parts of the story, which then made me wonder as I was writing notes. So who is telling this story, and who are they telling it to? Yeah. You know, because in in Kane, you get this superstructure around it where there is this reporter. So I was wondering, are these stories they're telling to DeWitt who is telling this story mm -hmm. who, like, and, and again, it doesn't matter, but I found that very interesting that like, um, if you take a step back, it is worth, worth wondering, like, where is this conversation happening that these people are, are talking? Well, it's like they're just talking through the fourth wall, right? It's mm -hmm. talking. I think it's really a couple of very important things about, about the voiceover. One is, Look who gets a voiceover and who does not get a voiceover. So DeWitt, who is kind of to a certain extent our guide to this world, you know, I, I think there is a way in which if there if if we're going to talk about is there a central point of view in this film with all these different voices, the closest I would come to would, would be DeWitt, who is a version of Mankiewicz in a way. Um, and then it's the two it's the two main women. It's Karen Richards and Margot. Um, the 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 other men do not get a voice. They right. They they don't they don't get voiceovers, and Eve, of course, doesn't get a voiceover. So it's really interesting because I think there's a fundamental um, tension in this film between the empowerment of women, uh, because they are the central characters and they get almost all the best lines, uh, and this notion that women ultimately are only fulfilled if they uh, retreat into a domestic relationship. And I, I don't know how aware Mankiewicz was of that or to what extent Mankiewicz was setting that up as a deliberate tension, but it seems to me to be, it, it, there's a way in which you can view this film as, as feminist, and there's a way in which you can view this film as patriarchal uh, at, this, at the same time. I'm glad that you uh, that you mentioned that because that was one of the things that I was wondering about because it does there are these great moments of um where it's like it's like the story kind of slows down and stops and allows 
Margot in conversation with somebody to just sort of reveal the realities of her situation and the things that she's struggling with. There's a sort of a series of, of scenes where she's doing that. Um, and I, so it made me wonder about Mankiewicz, both in terms of intent, his his world, his experience with women in the world to to give voice to those things. I mean, there's moments where it's like, oh, I wish this was written by a woman, <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. you know, in, in some ways, uh, because because that really is sort of a a, a, a central uh, a central moment, a uh, central kind of tension in the film. Maybe let's talk about that. Um, so so Margot gives um, there's a couple there, there there's two really main speeches and then kind of a third at the dinner where where Margot was talking about this. So, so um, one is in the kitchen at the, in the, in the party mm-hmm. scene. So they, they move into the kitchen and she yeah. starts to talk about, um, she starts talking about Bill Sampson and how he's eight years younger than her. Well, first she talks about how she's three months ago has turned 40 and it's like, she's revealing that to, um, she's revealing that to Lloyd who she's talking to, but she's also revealing it to us, the audience, because, you know, she's playing younger in these roles and I'm, unfamiliar with Betty Davis as an actress. Like I was kind of wondering like, huh, I wonder how old she is. So there's this moment where she just says, okay, I'm 40. And then she says, I, I wasn't planning on saying that. I feel, uh, did she say I feel naked or I feel undressed mm-hmm. after having mm-hmm. said that, you know? And then she, and then she talks about Lloyd uh, or not about Lloyd, about Bill, how he's 32 and five years ago, he looked 32 and 20 years from now, he's <laughs> going to look 32. And she just ends that by saying, I hate men. <laughs> you know, it's like, like I, I hate, I hate the reality of like, I am somebody who is publicly, f- she perceives herself as sort of publicly fading, you know, but someone like him is going to, um, look the same or is going like, is allowed to age, um, mm-hmm gracefully you know but but that she's in a position where she's not allowed to do that and then we get this what i think is one of the really great speeches is the when they're in the car kind of stuck in the car um and she Mm. said and this is where she talks about kind of that identity she's like you know bill loves Margot channing Mm -hmm. um but 10 years from now she's Margot channing is going to cease to exist and like can we actually be married and live a life is is he in love with whoever I am that is not Margot Channing. Um, and, and, and I wrote this line down because um, I thought this was really, again, this is, this seems really insightful and interesting. She says, um, so I, you know, yeah, she says, um, uh, funny business, a woman's career, mm. the things you drop on your way up the ladder so you can move faster. You forget you'll need them again when you get back to being a woman. It's yeah. one career all females have in common, whether they like it or not, being a woman. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, and, and, and it's hard to know, uh, since a man wrote those lines, hard to know whether that's descriptive or whether mm-hmm. that's prescriptive, right? So, right. That, 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 as I said, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the tension. And, of course, you know, what Margot is going through, um, and, and Betty Davis was 42 at the time, so very close to what she's saying. I think Gary Merrill was probably about the age she says. Um, I mean, that's – I think Hollywood is doing a better job of, of giving older actor, act, female actors roles, but I think it still is a fundamental issue, you know, that the guys are allowed to age – and then, and uh, you know, you think about some of our older actors who are still around, you know, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, mm-hmm. and you know, they they keep getting work no matter how old they are. But then think about some of the younger actresses that you don't see in many, in many roles anymore, or they get or they get consigned 
to, you know, here's, here comes the grandmother or here's, here's the cameo. The other thing that is eerily prescient about this scene, as you're probably aware of, is that Betty Davis as Margot Channing and Gary Merrill as, as Bill Richardson uh, actually do fall in love on the set and they actually do get married and they actually do end up getting divorced um, because as, as, uh, as one account has it, because they didn't, it wasn't Margot and it, it wasn't Betty Davis and Gary Merrill that got married. It was Margot and Bill. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, so that, it just, that just adds a layer to the scene that I just think is really fascinating. Well, and I will say I intentionally stopped that quote there because I like that speech there. But then the next thing she says is then she moves on to basically saying, you know, you're nothing if you don't have a man, have a man and have a family. And which is both it's heartbreaking to hear um, to hear her say that. And um, and it also points to the tension where she feels again. And this is where I think about, you know, women going leaving the workforce as the war ends is like, mm -hmm. you know, what are the choices that are left to you? And, and, and basically can you have both, you know, and, and yeah. they're positioned in a world where you can't really have both, or at least the perception is you can't have both. Well, I mean, if you think, if you think sociologically about the 1950s, Sam, right. I mean, the 1950s is the time of the, of the celebration of the great American kind of nuclear family, the, the kind of archetypal family, you know, it's the, it's the leave it to beaver. It's the Donna Reed show, you know, the kids go off to school, the husband goes off to work and the wife is at, is at home. And it's, um, it's not Rosie the Riveter anymore. And so I, I think in a way, you know, Mankiewicz was kind of foretelling that or, 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 or that was sort of intent that that was sort of the model that, that was normal. And now we're finally going to get back back to normal after after the war. And one of my another one of my favorite. Sorry, I wrote a lot of lines down. This is a really great movie with a great script. Yes. Um, come, one of the great lines comes from a character who is not somebody that I tend to think of as having like a really great uh, a really great role here. And that's Karen has one of the best biting lines to think about some of these questions when she's arguing with with Lloyd about. Um, you know, whether Margot should play in footsteps on the ceiling. Um, and, and, uh, Lloyd says, uh, that bitter cynicism of yours is something mm. you've acquired since you left Radcliffe. And she <laughs> responds that cynicism you refer to, I acquired the day I discovered I was different from little boys. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. I'm aware of So it's almost like she's teaching him, like <laughs> there is a reality here that you're ignoring, you know? And it's like, and, and that is, that's a way for her to kind of some, sum up what Margot said to said to him before now she's saying like this is something we all deal with uh, i i just thought that's that stuff was yeah. great yeah. yeah um one other thing about the 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 structure of this uh movie that i really loved and i got i hinted at this before is this idea that when you get started it positions eve as this kind of innocent who just wants to like wants to help and in fact when um when karen tries to bring her backstage she's like no 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 i don't don't i you know and and so like everything plays out it's is playing out one kind of version of the story one of my favorite scenes is that in this movie is when um they first go backstage and they meet with well it's a great scene where where um uh, where Eve goes and looks out at the theater from the stage. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a great moment. But then they go into the um, into the dressing room and you see Eve 
eventually tell her story to everybody else. It's some of the great acting from Betty Davis when she doesn't even say a word. It's watching her yes. listen to Eve. Because one of the things that people point out about this movie is we're constantly told w what a great actress Eve is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, DeWitt is celebrating her as this like thing that comes around every once in a while. And they intentionally never let you see her act. Except mm -hmm. when she tells this story, she is acting, right? Mm -hmm. We learn later this story is not true, but you see everyone else just enwrapped in what she is saying. And I and you see Betty Davis again without saying many words change from this actress who's, you know, putting on airs, or in the words of Birdie, playing Hamlet's mother, to all of a sudden like she melts and just becomes this person who is drawn to Eve. I love that scene, right? Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. and then, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Right. Oh, and then, you know, and then, and then you have Birdie right after, right after that point. Like, she's already skeptical of it, but she also apologizes for her skepticism. And as this, the story continues, like you just see Eve being helpful. And I, in my head, I was like, oh, this is going to be a story about how, how all of these kind of powerful, rich, privileged people kind of can't get out of their own way when a kind person is trying to help them. That's because that's the way the story sets up. And it is much later that you realize, much, much later that you realize Eve is actually pulling all of these strings. And you, you know, almost like um, like in the movie The Usual Suspects, you realize watching it a second time, oh, she's she's doing this stuff. This is there is there is a different intent to these things. Even things like the midnight phone call, right? That can be positioned as actually a really great thing. She was thinking ahead and just forgot to tell her about it. It's like, or is she putting her in this other position? I thought that stuff is brilliant. I fell for it. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and I think you're right. I think the film is so, it's so smart not to show her performance um, on the stage, you know, to leave us to imagine it. But as you said, it is a performance that she gives. In fact, she's acting the whole time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only a couple of points in the film, at key points, where uh, the mask slips and we see what's going on. So there's the telephone call, that she has the friend make uh, to to Lloyd, you know, to pretend to be sick, and then of course, you know, when she gets unmasked by uh, by Addison at the end, and then in her conversations with Phoebe uh, in in the last scene, that's really when when the mask is kind of completely off. So in a sense, it kind of bookends the beginning of the film where you see Betty Davis with the cold cream. She's no longer acting. You kind of see Eve at the end in, in the same way. I also have to say something about Birdie. Um, she is fantastic. Uh, she is. She holds the record for Academy Award nominations for supporting actress. She was nominated six times, um, never won, unfortunately, but nominated six times. Uh, she is wonderful in a noir that we have not watched, but I have to mention it called Pick Up on South Street, uh, for which she got a nomination. But she was. This role was kind of written for her by Mankiewicz. This is exactly the. The, the person that he had in, in, in mind. And he wanted somebody who was sharp-eyed enough to kind of see through Eve. And of course, what's going on here is um, uh, the obviously the susceptibility to flattery uh, that Margot and the others have, which uh, Birdie does not. But the other thing I want to suggest, and maybe this is a bit of a stretch, Sam, but I also want to suggest, as you talk about the fact that Eve is putting on a performance and that performance um, fools people, manipulates people. I, it's possible to think about her as a stand-in for, for a work of art, a stand-in for the film itself. Like, to what degree do we find ourselves 
um, not necessarily manipulated, but to what degree do, 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 does art and film in particular appeal to elements of our nature uh, so that we kind of get drawn in? I mean, you've been talking all along about various ways in which this film draws you in. So this film, in a way, operates on us as an audience almost the way Eve operates on, on Margot. Well, and as you point out, the, the brilliance of that is that it is also a movie that is about how the artifice of art gets made. So you have a writer actually saying, I'm the one writing the words you're saying, again, to your point that like, so even the things people are saying, we're constantly aware these are things that are that are written, right? Um, you know, in, in the, in, yeah, I think that's, I think that is really, that's, that's a really uh, interesting way to think about it. You know, that, that, that hadn't occurred to me. It's, it's, it's like the magician saying, now I will now do a magic trick. This is a magic trick. I'm doing a magic trick. None of this is real. It's a magic trick. And yet you, you accept right. it as reality. Right, right. Um, another thing that, um, that I found interesting is thinking about kind of also like the, the role of women in this film and, and, and what it's saying about their roles in society or what's, what's allowed for them is the way that this also shows a world that pits women against each other mm -hmm. because with the exception of Karen, who is, you know, kind of on the outside of, I mean, she gets to like, she's part of it, but she's not in the race with everybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about, you have Margot, you have Eve, you have Miss Coswell, right. Mm -hmm. Who is also a potential threat, right. This new kind of up and coming person who turns out probably lacks the talent as the movies. We also have Phoebe at the end. We also have Birdie who herself was an actress, right? She mm -hmm. talks about kind of being in vaudeville. And then you have one of my favorite characters is somebody we don't see, but we only get commented on is the actress from Hollywood who shows up at the story oh, yeah. or shows up at the party. And like, everybody's kind of dismissive of her, but there is also this like real jealousy about clearly the wealth she has. And it's like, they want to, they want to kind of put her down but at the same time there is this even though you don't see her there's this kind of gravity pointing you to this other room that she's in that you don't get to see you know so i, I found that just really interesting too is the way that that it's not just Margot and eve but there's all of these other ways where there are potential threats uh mm -hmm. career threats yeah. where that we don't necessarily see with with the men in the film either yeah no that's a that's a really interesting point that the hollywood um the Hollywood pecking order or the Hollywood kind of com competition, it's, it seems to be, it focuses much more on, on the actresses than it does on, on the actors. The other thing, of course, is, you know, again, as we said about Mankiewicz, that he really is interested in creating a world inhabited by women. So if anybody's wanting to know which Mankiewicz film to do next, go to, letter, go to his film, the previous year, Letter to the Three Wives. Um, I, I, again, another, another film that really focuses on the interrelationships of, of women. Well, and to that point, this is, I think, the only film uh, in the history of the Oscars to have four women nominated for acting in the yeah. same film. Yeah, and there's a, and there's a big debate over. Um, I mean, I, I I I've never understood how much control an actress can have over how she was nominated. I guess the studio puts it forward, right? So, mm -hmm. Anne Baxter did not want to be nominated as, in the supporting role, so she was. So, both Baxter and uh, Davis got. That got nominated for best actress, and as a result, neither neither one of them won. That's the, that's the standard interpretation. But you know, it's interesting, Sam. When I was rewatching the film, I thought no, because what struck me this time was how Margot does drop away in the last kind of quarter of the film, and I really think that it was a. I, I really think that was the right category for Baxter. 
I, I really think they both were the main, the, they were the main performers. Um, so as I was thinking about this movie, I was, I was, um, I was reminded of an, another movie. Now it's, it's not related, but it's, a, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a similar story or a same story, but, um, movies about people who kind of, uh, draw you in and are not what they appear. Um, but make you, I, I thought a lot about the movie six degrees of separation from like the mm -hmm. late eighties, early nineties. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a early, early Will Smith performance before he's famous yeah. at all really. Um, but it is about this, this, this guy who, um, claims to be Sidney Poitier's son and kind of works himself into, uh, a layer of New York society. And there is this combination of like, he is kind to everybody and, and, and like benign to everybody. But then there's also like these questions about like, well, what is he after? Is there something malignant there? This, it made me think of this, this story yeah. as well. Um, all that is to say, this is a story that has been um, retold in lots and lots of different ways. If you, even if you look at the Wikipedia page, there's a lot of like, here's this thing did a version of this, and this thing did a version of of a story like this. Um, I'm curious, going back, is this a um, a story that has? I mean, I know that it has roots in an actual real story, mm -hmm. um, the Wisdom of Eve, um, but it, but that's a pretty pretty recent to when this movie was made. Is this? Uh, you know, in the same way I said that Shop Around the Corner felt like a Roman comedy, you know, this feels like a Greek tragedy in certain ways. Like, is there, a, are there older versions of kind of this type of story? I, you know, I, I can't think of a, of a good comparison, um, Sam. I mean, you know, what, what comes to mind immediately would be uh, a Shakespeare play like, uh, like Othello, where you could argue that Iago is kind of playing this kind of role. But, that's, but, but, but even that's different because he's not an ingenue. He's not just showing up. He's got a deep relationship with Othello. So I can't, I can't think of a good um, historical antecedent. However, I can think of a film influenced by this film that sets the same kind of action in an earlier time and that would be the favorite um oh, sure. uh, and and the emma stone character in the favorite is basically is basically eve and in fact the screenwriter said she was inspired by all about eve when she when she wrote the favorite um another film by the same director who we saw with the lobster uh, uh last year but anyway so i so that at least posits the historical possibility that there's been other characters like Eve. Um, as I'm just sort of finishing out my notes here, there was, there's one moment in the film that struck me, struck me as very odd and I kind of loved it. Um, although I not quite sure I can make sense of it based on the characters, but it's at the party um, after uh, Margot has her, her blow up and delivers the famous fasten your seatbelts line and goes into the kitchen there's a scene later where all of our central characters, including Addison DeWitt, are all sitting on the stairs. Yeah, it's just it's, it's like a, it's a it's I love that scene and I love the the composition of that. But it's also interesting to see these characters all like bunched up sitting sitting on the stairs having a and they're having a often a very funny conversation about the Hollywood actor. And maybe it is the presence of the Hollywood actors that draws them out of the main room or something. But um. I just found that to be a, just an interesting choice because I, because DeWitt doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to sit on the stairs and neither do, neither do the other people we see there. Well, I'm glad you picked out that scene because I said earlier, I wanted to say a few things about Mankiewicz as a visual director. And I think that scene's a good example. 
Uh, he really isn't interested in the realism of the party at that point. That's 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 a kind of a symbolic grouping of a of a kind of a Greek chorus is is really what he's kind of creating there. Uh, and so that uh, it, so it's it's completely implausible, but at the same time, it's completely fascinating because because you, you just love to hear the people in this film talk to each other. Even Marilyn Monroe gets great lines, so mm -hmm. it's it's terrific. Uh, are there other things that jump out from jump out at you? Things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, two two more things in particular, and then a couple of footnotes. Um, I want to go back to the opening scene because um, one of the things that's interesting about that is as Eve is reaching out to receive the award, the actor, by the way, is an actor named Walter Hampton. He uh, had a long career in the theater as well as um, uh, in silent films. And he actually, when he was uh, running a theater uh, back in the early 30s, he turned Betty Davis down, he told her, he did, did not give her a part and she, she remembered that. Anyway, um, the freeze frame. Uh, the last time we saw a freeze frame, you may recall, was in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, when Jimmy Stewart is talking about how big a, uh, a suitcase that he wants. And, you know, freeze frames become kind of a cliche uh, since then, although there's still some films that use the freeze frame very effectively, maybe most famously recently in Thelma and Louise. Um, but just the fact that, that the film literally stops at that point, literally stops so the story can be told. I just love that moment. The other thing, which I think is an element of the film that's much neglected, um, and we really haven't talked much about the ending. Um, I referred to Eve's unmasking earlier, but the appearance of Phoebe. And again, it's another beautifully executed visual shot, which I think has, um, it has to be an homage to uh, Orson Welles' Lady from Shanghai in the mirror scene. So you get Phoebe caught in the mirror, reflected into an infinite number of, of Phoebes. Um, so it's, it's this notion that this is a, this is a system which will simply continue in the same way that Eve has preyed on Margot, Phoebe will prey up, play on, on Eve. And it also is a comment on um, the only reality that is important to people like Phoebe and Eve is the reality of, of the perception by others of, of themselves. And so one of the afterlives of All About Eve is the Broadway play um, Applause. Uh, because that's that's what Eve keeps saying is her motivation. It's the applause of, of others. And what's interesting is um, Lauren Bacall had the title role of Margot Channing in Applause, and she was replaced um, uh, actually by Eve Baxter uh, when she when she stepped out of that role. So anyway. Well, it's interesting that the, the sense of like, like, you know, craving applause. I, one of the small moments I love is when they're doing the curtain call um, and you know, the, at first it's the whole cast and then it's Margo yeah. and the male lead and then it's Margo. And then when the curtain goes down, he says, do you want another one? And she says, no, at this point, it's just people waiting to leave the theater or something like that. It's like, it's, it's something to do while you're waiting for the aisles to clear, you know? So, so, so she, I like that, that she sort of understands and is over it. Plus I love the commentary on the like, um, uh, social conventions of, standing ovations and things like that sometimes where it's like i guess we're doing this you know and you, um i i i love that a lot. one thing that uh when you were talking about the 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 entrance of phoebe you know at the end and you were talking about the multiple mirrors i thought you were talking about something else which i also loved which is mm. the the actual first time we see phoebe mm. is nearly a jump scare for me oh yeah yeah because like there's this moment where 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 the I can't remember if the camera moves or how it works or if she just moves out of the way and you see this woman you've never seen before that kind of looks like young Eve. Yeah. 
in the background, you know, reflected in the mirror. And I had this moment of like, is this, is she having like a mental break and she's seeing herself? It was this great confusing moment in the last seven minutes of the film. Yeah. And it, it, it had this moment where it broke things I thought about the movie for a second. And then when I realized, oh, this is a real person and this is a real person. And we're, then we see the cycle. I thought that reveal was fantastic. I, I Sam, I actually backed up. I backed the film up again because I was like, "How did I miss her?" Because I, you know, he does such a great job of focusing on Eve. I mean, Eve is standing in front of the mirror. She's making the drink, and Phoebe is. You can see Phoebe, but I didn't see Phoebe because I was watching Eve. It's 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 fantastic. It's fantastic. I, I had to go back and look at it again to make sure was Phoebe actually in the chair all along or did right. they sneak her in? So yeah, it's, it's yeah. So I think that's another great example of the Mankiewicz when he needs to or wants to or has to, um, he's capable of some pretty interesting visual effects. Absolutely. So you said you had a couple other footnotey things. Well, yeah, in addition to the note on applause, I just wanted to say, uh, it's just something about casting that at one point, both Ronald Reagan and Nancy Davis were under consideration to be in this cast. So can you imagine what this film would have been like, you know, if Ronald Reagan had been had been Bill and uh, Nancy Davis had been, had been Karen Richards? I think that would have been that way. Who, I don't who think that would have read as who well. Knows the, who knows what the future of American politics would have been? Maybe if they'd been in a really successful film like All About Eve, they, he never would have gone into politics. Who knows? Right. Uh, one other casting note, since we're doing this, um, because I always want to mark this person when I notice her. Um, the uh, the Marilyn Monroe character, two other actresses who were up for that were Zsa, Zsa Gabor yes. and Angela Lansbury. Yes. My wife yes. loves Angela Lansbury, so whenever I can whenever I can put in an Angela Lansbury fact, I'll I'll put that in. Um, that would have been a very even Angela Lansbury in 1950 would have been a very different like visual yes. than Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe is really well cast in this small role. I she think. was, and she was a rising star at this point. And, you know, pe people have said, well, do we only notice Marilyn Monroe in retrospect? But actually the critics at the time when the film was reviewed noticed her right away. She had some kind of an incandescent uh, star well, quality. Part of that is even costuming. If you look at yeah. stills from that scene, everybody's dressed in dark, everybody's dressed in black, and she's dressed in all white. So like she is designed to pop off the screen there too. And that was one of the six Oscars for this film was best costume design. So. All right. So what do you have for us for next week? Uh, a little bit, a little bit of a change of pace. Um, last, last week, um, Peter Bogdanovich died. Uh, one of our kind of, I, I'm going to call him an interesting director. I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to call him a great director, but he's an interesting director. So I thought to join our, our list, our short list of films either set in the 1930s or actually filmed in the 1930s Depression era, I think we should watch Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. Uh, from 1973. So this this is kind of goes alongside Our Brother Where Art Thou is a film set in the Depression or alongside It Happened One Night is a film that takes place in the Depression. So uh, Paper Moon, uh, Tatum O'Neill, uh, the youngest person ever to win an Oscar uh, with her father, Ryan O'Neill. Oh, I'm very excited for this. I um, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a Peter Bogdanovich movie. Um, I've I've no idea what this movie's about, which is again the best way to watch a movie. So I'm very excited. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, recommending All About Eve. If you've listened to this whole conversation and have never seen this movie, go see it. It's great. It. <laughs> something good was happening in movies in 1950 between the three that we've watched from that year. It's, it's an outstanding year. I, I, I just absolutely love this movie. I, 
love Betty Davis as an actress, as it turns out. Like, I, she definitely won me over. I kind of want to see her in other things um, uh, as well. So she's somebody I kind of want to explore a little bit more. But thank you for recommending this. That's all the time that we have. But we will be back next week to talk about Paper Moon in the video store.